You're listening to the Road to Wisdom podcast, weaving stories told by wonderful minds about all things motherhood, health, intimacy, politics, nature, and everything in between. Join us on an adventure discovering unique experiences that we can learn from to enhance the ways in which we live. We are your hosts, Chloe and Kishia. Welcome, Nico Kennedy. We are so honoured to have you today. Um, you are a perinatal quantum biology practitioner, which is <laughs> a mouthful, <laughs> but also something I've not really heard of before. Um, I've heard of quantum practitioner, but perinatal, um, I find that really unique and yet very important. Um We've recently kind of delved into quantum biology and circadian rhythm on our podcast and it's been one of our most popular and, yeah, well-received episodes. And so um, we're really excited to kind of just expand on that and kind of go more in the direction of mothering, parenting, pregnancy, conception and really kind of get into some of those more common problems that we might see um and demystify some of them um because I know you've spoken on a couple of them but um I thought I would just let you explain exactly what a perinatal quantum biology practitioner is sure thank you uh i'm really excited to talk with you gals i've been following along with your last few podcast episodes since one of the quantum folks in my community was on and just earlier today i listened to um the one you had with one of the gentlemen behind the quantum kid oh yeah Yeah. jalal (laughs) yeah that was great it was a really lovely interview i really appreciated that today so um, yeah, you. you're doing great work and it's wonderful to hear that your community is receptive to this message of light and darkness and earthing, mm. which is really what it all sums up to. So in my work, uh, locally, I work with families as a doula supporting their pregnancy, birth and postpartum journeys. And then online, I have more of a coaching practice that uh, I've been getting more folks that are having trouble with fertility coming to me saying, well, you seem to know about this. What can we do? And unraveling all kinds of sleep issues and different health issues that can be behind the huge amount of, uh, you know, fertility troubles that people are facing these days. And um, I know you're, you are based out of Australia. So here in the U.S., we have some kind of rough statistics about maternal well-being. And... When you look into that, there is some, there's a, some that has to do with specific practices related to the way that births are run in the hospital. Uh, but experts estimate that about 60% of the challenges are coming from the home environment and comorbidities that women are coming into their pregnancy with. So as a quantum biology practitioner, I'm bringing in the light piece and the earthing piece and the EMF exposure and all of those kinds of uh, holistic home-based wellness practices. And then I'm bringing what I know about the perinatal period from my work as a doula. And I've been studying the birth world for over 17 years now when I was young. That's what I decided I wanted to do, but that I wanted to have my own family first. So I just... Uh, I love reading and and learning, and so all of it just is kind of coming together right now, and I'm really trying to move this message forward. Mm, and you've just given birth to your fourth baby four months ago, so I feel like not only are you learning about it and sharing that, but obviously embodying it. So I'd, maybe if we've got time, I'd love to hear how that's going. But um, uh, something that I wanted to just define quickly was what is quantum nourishment in terms of pregnancy? Or just, I mean, I'm sure that actually probably applies to non-pregnant, yeah. like, and our children and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, quantum is a word that we borrowed or are using that's from physics. And so when you're looking at quantum biology, we're looking at how physical things 
affect biological processes. I think that's the simplest way to explain why we're using that word. And uh, quantum is also related to very small things. So the scope of quantum biology is, um, I think maybe people mainly think about the subatomic particles that we're looking at. And so it's a lot to do with electron flow and looking at the bio, uh, the biology as a bioelectric system. Um, and then it goes up all the way through to the entire system or the environment because everything uh, in the world has these, um, you know, subatomic particles. And so I, I don't want to say that it's reductionist because on the one hand, it, you're thinking like, oh, quantum biology, electrons and protons, that's really small, that's really segmented, that is, how can that apply to day-to-day -day life? And, um, but it, when you actually get to the practices of quantum biology, it's very simple how to live the lifestyle, but you do have to kind of give up a lot of things that are in the modern world. And so I think that's kind of what the biggest challenge with it is, is how to, um, it embody a lifestyle that really connects with nature and the source of all of those electrons and protons flowing that make up all of the other uh, biological processes. So it's hard to explain, but easy to do. Mm. Yeah, no, I just love, I mean, like that's exactly our understanding of it as well, but um, I've heard the term quantum nourishment and I was like, that just really lands as something that just feels good. Like, being quantum nourished is obviously the, you know, that's what you get from living these um, these lifestyle practices. But um, something that really kind of striked me was when you were discussing uh, supporting mothers specifically um, during these childbearing years when we just don't really sleep and our lives are quite con can be quite controlled if you choose that. Um, around our baby and the movements and kind of what they're doing. Um, and so like if you look into an allopathic model of health and, you know, how to be optimal, it's like sleep is your number one. Like you must be getting enough sleep if you want to live to 100. And I'm like, well, a lot of mothers read that and they just feel completely doomed. Um, and, you know, for us we're about to enter our fifth, preg fifth birth and fifth. In eight years. Yeah. Mm. And so... I don't think I've slept through the night in eight years. <laughs> and so I'd love for you to just speak to, um, yeah, like from a quantum nourished perspective, how do we, how could we kind of improve um, our well-being from that perspective? Yeah, I love that question because sleep is one of the first things that improves when you start living a more circadian and quantum lifestyle. And sleep in the motherhood period, I think my personal journey really comes to play here. And everything transformed for me when I read a paper about polyphasic sleep in humans and how when you uh, shorten the photo period, sleep becomes more fragmented naturally. And it just made so much sense to me that you don't have to get all of the sleep in one go. And so in this paper, the author had some pretty shocking language. He said that the eight-hour sleep window is an artificial construct of a 16-hour artificial lighting environment. And this is from one of the pioneers in light therapy for depression. So he uh, basically put people in a lab environment and slowly dialed the lighting there. And then through that, he was able to control their sleep. So as a mother, we're up and down through the night. And so just to know that I could get my sleep in segments with my baby and just spend a longer time in bed and not have the expectation that I'm getting eight hours of unbroken sleep and that maybe eight hours of unbroken sleep is not even the optimal sleep pattern for humans because no one else in the animal kingdom does that. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about safety, if we didn't have our homes, we would be up listening for our predators. We might, if it was cold, we'd be up stoking the fire, doing different things. And so there are two 
polyphasic sleep patterns that are pretty well known. And one is to have two sections in the night, and that would be like in a polar winter. Um, so you sleep for a few hours and then you wake up and tend the fire and watch the stars. And then an hour or so later, you feel sleepy again, you go back to bed. And then you wake up at dawn and you're fresh. And even though you had an hour waking period in the night, the other pattern is um, like the polar summers where there aren't the long nights at all. And I've had people who live like up in Alaska ask me, well, you say that you need 14 hours of darkness at night, but the sun doesn't set here. And so in that really long summer day, there's another opportunity of polyphasic sleep where you sleep about half around midnight and then the other half around noon. And that's what the animals and that's what the indigenous people used to do before we had electricity and electric lighting. This is kind of incredible. So two options there. <laughs> because, <laughs> sorry, go ahead, actually. No, go ahead and I'll make my point later. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I was just going to summarize that for moms, I think it's entirely physio physiological to have broken sleep and that there's one more piece of research that I could bring to this conversation, which was uh, around postpartum depression. And they found that moms who have postpartum depression have fewer night wakings than moms who don't. Interesting. Fewer. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, that's something that I really want to talk to, but I just was going to say, like, I find, firstly, I feel like that's the biggest hug I've ever gotten as a mother. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, I just feel like this is such important information to actually know as a parent because so often if we're not getting eight hours of sleep and, out, you know, like babies wake up, but because they wake up and because we have this idea that we need this sleep to be able to mm -hmm. function, to be able to produce milk, to be able to do anything, we are so oftenly told to revert to the separation of mother-child, like put your baby in a cot, start um, sleep weaning, training. sleep training, and all of this super, um, <laughs> and then also like destructive even, even that breast, like the express milk, so then your husband can wake up in the night and yes. feed the baby, and that just it seems it doesn't it doesn't feel right, but people do it because they feel like sleep is really important, and that's what we've always been led to believe. But this is kind of seriously paradigm shifting in a way because it makes women. Like obviously we can support ourselves through these ideas that we don't need eight hours of unbroken sleep to thrive. Um, and it's interesting they make the point that postpartum depression was often associated with less waking, um, which, you know, there's a mystery. I would assume it's a mystery in Western medicine as to why these things feel play like out, which isn't a mystery to us, of no, course. No. <laughs> I feel like we could debunk that really Yeah, but... but um, <laughs> I, I guess we should maybe we could go back a little bit to pregnancy and how, um, you know, I, I I know you've said that your mother gives you your circadian rhythm, and I'd love to kind of maybe potentially start then since we're all well, we're both pregnant yeah. and fascinated in you know ways of kind of supporting supporting ourselves postpartum and obviously having the best start for our babies. Um, so yeah, like what what does that all mean? Yeah. So the circadian rhythm is timing what happens when. And as I was sharing this uh, story of the light environment where they were dialing the light and by changing the light, we're able to change the sleep. There is a, a caveat to that polyphasic sleep. And that is that if you're waking up with your baby or if you're pregnant, you maybe aren't waking up with the baby. You have older children, so you probably are. But even just to go pee. If you're waking up and flipping on artificial light, then that's turning your body into daytime mood. And so in that case, the polyphasic sleep is not going to really work for you because every time that artificial light is hitting your eyes and your skin, it is waking you all the way up. And the process that wakes you up travels through the nerves. So it happens pretty much instantaneously. Whereas the process for melatonin to start flowing is happening through um, a chemical process where a threshold is building up. And when the threshold is released, then the melatonin starts flowing. So depending on the person, it can take two to three hours to have a significant release of the melatonin that comes from our brains. So the process to get into daytime mode 
instant. The process to get into nighttime mode, very slow. So in all phases of being a mother where you're having this nighttime wakings, whether it's because you have to go pee or because you're taking care of a child, um, in, uh, for birth workers, this is a huge deal because birth workers are supporting women and labor tends to happen at night because of the synergy of melatonin and oxytocin. And so if labor is a nighttime activity and it's facilitated by melatonin, then that's part of why there's such a challenge with the out-of-home environment because as soon as you get into a car, that bright light is putting the body into cortisol mode rather than the melatonin mode. Can but I, anyways, to back up even further to, sure, go ahead. Just really quickly so that we can um, clarify for our listeners, melatonin is the supportive hormone. It is it, It's a hormone. It's a hormone? Melatonin? It is. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> supportive hormone that helps with sleep. Um, but would you be able to quickly uh, run us through melatonin and oxytocin and that synergistic relationship? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So melatonin and oxytocin are both extremely important to the childbearing process and they're related to um, many different aspects and they have a lot of similarities actually and like they both help with uh, emotional regulation and they both can have antioxidant potential and uh, are very supportive. And so with melatonin specifically, the um, the antioxidant potential is what we will talk about a lot when it comes to the quantum biology side of things. So it's not just the timing of facilitating sleep, but also what it's doing and how it's uh, supporting mitochondria. Um, and then with oxytocin, um, there researchers are still kind of trying to figure out the oxytocin puzzle. But what the most recent findings are that it is also related to the circadian rhythm and that both the circadian rhythm of melatonin as well as um, oxytocin are kind of imprinted in early life. And so for uh, women who have had really challenging early life experiences, there can be physiological challenges in the circadian rhythm and in the oxytocin system that can come into the, the childbearing process that can make uh, big challenges there. And so these are both hormones. And then of course the other hormones Also, the endocrine system is regulated by the circadian rhythm, and it's a bidirectional relationship. So the endocrine system is also impacting the circadian rhythm, and that's part of what's so challenging about all of the uh, environmental toxins and endocrine-disrupting chemicals that are so um, prevalent right now is that it's, it, it is also impairing the body's timekeeping system by changing the way those feedback signals that are coming back into the system. Mm-hmm. So with the circadian rhythm, we have the primary clock in the brain that is mainly entrained by the light in our eyes, but then we have peripheral clocks all throughout the body that are then sending information back to that same part of the brain from inside. So it is true that light is the primary entrainer, but then it's also the whole thing's happening. And so when you look at something like oxytocin, which is an emotional regulator, um, you know, you can call it the hug hormone or the cuddle hormone. And so the way that we live our lives there um, with regard to our emotional state is also impacting our biology through this, uh, this, these feedback loops. Is that somewhat what you were thinking of um, wanting to share about melatonin and oxytocin we could go in even further like in labor they're both yeah I think very were, important but since we were kind of talking pregnancy, no I think you were actually going there before about you know like the interruption of labor by getting in the car and going to the hospital and um slowing you know obviously that's that's a possibility that it's slowing the labor or halting the labor altogether which I mean that can lead to a whole host of Mm-hmm. complications in itself mm-hmm. but so um yeah easily overlooked i'm sure getting to a hospital and realizing that your labor stopped and it's um not flowing and then obviously one thing can lead to another in a hospital setting but we won't go there <laughs> um <laughs> no it's just it's i find this really interesting and can relate quite a bit because in my first labor and pregnancy which we were just talking about so bear with me 
Um, but like one of the biggest things for me without having any of this information was it was the lights. It was the hospital lights that knocked me out of labor. And like I would, I was back and forth from the hospital a little bit. And every time I'd go home, my labor would kick off. I'd be like in the throes of it. And then I'd get into the car and I would start slowing down a little bit, but then I'd get into the hospital and it would stop and I would stall. And my like without anyone touching me or doing anything it just stopped and I'm like I, it's the lights like the lights are just killing me I can't handle these lights and so you know Chloe actually introduced me to quantum biology and I was like oh my god this makes so much sense because it's like from experience that was knocking out my hormones so um and it's something that is so easily overlooked because they're just lights <laughs> but yeah like the, the the like reality is is that it's artificial it's still something artificial within our environment and that you know for the most people we're not getting outside into natural light we're in these artificial mm. I guess makeups. it just yeah. I guess it just seems I see I, I feel like it seems hard to almost accept because it's so simple Mm. that by having an artificial light on is sending all these signals and messages in your body that aren't supposed to be happening um versus being out in the light which is sending signals that are necessary and needed and um I guess you've spoken about how important those more natural light signals are during pregnancy because they obviously impact and facilitate so many different aspects of a healthy pregnancy. Um, And then they also impact postpartum or not particularly postpartum, but your baby. Um, Wait, let's go. Do you want to do birth first and then we can? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what we could go into is more or less what's happening in the birthing process with our melatonin and oxytocin and then how can we best support that and I guess maybe even why would it turn off when you're in under those artificial lighting situations? Sure and to do that we kind of have to go back to the first trimester. Okay. The first trimester. I was actually just about to say, yeah. let's talk a little bit more about pregnancy. But yeah, okay. look, I'm so glad you've just done that. <laughs> Reading your mind. Okay, perfect. Yes. <laughs> so we need to start in the first trimester because the first trimester is when the placenta develops. So in the first trimester, we find sleep disruptions to be extremely detrimental to the pregnancy. And uh, you really want to have good sleep. And part of that is because the placenta is a major source of melatonin. It produces melatonin. So the first trimester before the placenta is created, the whole system is relying on the mother's melatonin. And then um, if the mother does not have sufficient melatonin, that we, it's, it's one of those things where it's like the double-blind trial would be so unethical in this. So we're relying on like observational studies of measuring things, and that kind of relies on researchers actually having the right ideas about things to be looking at the right data points. So what we seem to know is that if melatonin is disrupted in the first trimester, the placenta will not form properly. And then the ins- like when they talk about placental insufficiency, um, or uh, growth restriction, these and uh, preeclampsia, these all start coming up in the late second trimester or third trimester. But the seeds are set in when the placenta is created. So once the placenta is created, then it will start producing melatonin, and the mother's melatonin will then be growing, um, and her levels. Um, day and night. She still is having the the normal pineal rises and falls, but she's also having higher cellular melatonin. And the placenta's melatonin is um, nourishing the baby with extra melatonin, but it's also nourishing the mother. And so there's a huge peak of melatonin and the melatonin will be highest at the time of birth. And it's what prepares the uterus to be receptive to oxytocin. Wow. So if the melatonin 
has been having trouble, then the placenta is going to be having trouble, which then exacerbates the melatonin issue. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, How it compounds across the pregnancy to the moment of birth. And um, birth is a really high energy process. And so I talked about how melatonin uh, scavenges the free radicals. And so as the uterus is doing its work, it's creating lots of oxidative force. That's physiological. It's, it's an inflammatory process. However, in labors that stall, uh, that inflammation, um, the genes that code for it are, are just like off the charts. There's way more inflammation in, in like arrest of labor situations and so in the medical setting, what we would, what providers do is add Pitocin, which is synthetic oxytocin, does not cross the blood brain barrier, does not give the emotional sense of well-being. And when you, um, there was a, a survey done of women who chose epidural versus women who did not, there, per- there was no difference in their perceived pain. But what there was a difference was their level of fear. And so the epidural can come in and it does take away the pain, but it does not take away the fear. And neither does adding Pitocin in. And so that's what we were talking about, the emotional regulation that oxytocin can provide and this synergy of oxytocin and melatonin because they can also help each other um, where when there's higher levels of oxytocin, that can help boost the melatonin. And then, of course, the circadian rhythm is kind of behind both of those. So having the healthy light signals is going to make both of those systems better and make stronger feedback loops where each system can support the other better because of the energy of the circadian rhythm behind it, which is getting the morning light, getting outside throughout the day, and then having the full darkness. So there's several issues with light right now where we could look at being blue light toxic. We could look at being sunlight deficient. We could look at being darkness deficient, right? Those are three different kind of issues where a person might have some, you know, one, two, three, or none of those issues depending on their lifestyle. And each of those different kinds of light issues will manifest in different ways And of course, a a healthy woman is, you know, going to have a healthy baby. And there are, of course, you know, lots of mysteries to the process of that. But overall, this is just a really fundamental way to have healthy cellular energy. So all of the cellular energy in the the labor, the melatonin, one of the things it's doing is scavenging those free radicals so that the environment doesn't become overly acidic. Um, And then it is also... Uh, making it more responsive. And then it's also helping manage the pain. So women who have higher circulating melatonin have lower perceived levels of pain. So when we look at the labor experience, it's just, there's, it's better for the baby and it's better for the mom for the melatonin to be high. So synthetic melatonin with Pitocin in labors where things have already gone south, um, is having really good research, but ideally we're starting in the first trimester or preconception so that the melatonin levels have been able to rise through the pregnancy to that point. And then of course, at the time of birth and then after the placenta is birthed, that placenta has been a source of extra melatonin for the mom. And so there's a huge plummet in melatonin. And that's one of the things that is speculated to be women at risk for, um, postpartum psychosis could be related to this severe drop in melatonin if she is then living a lifestyle where she has a lot of artificial light and her melatonin levels are not going to be replenished in her nighttime wakings with her baby, then that huge, and of course there are many hormones that are dropping Mm -hmm. at that time, but anything that you can do to nourish the melatonin and facilitate a high melatonin level um, postpartum is going to help with all of the mood regulation and the circadian rhythm is really tied into, especially the the depressive disorders, but also like bipolar and schizophrenia. And it's also, you know, like this is the time when a woman is most likely to be diagnosed with a mental health condition and every single mental health condition has sleep disruption as part of its um, like diagnostic things that you would look at. And so if you have healthy sleep, then by definition, you don't have mental disorders because 
the mental disorder, the sleep is a defining characteristic of the mental disorder. Um, so it's, it's a huge deal um, that the artificial light, and it seems like you were talking about earlier, it seems so innocuous. It's just, it's just the TV. It's just the lights. It's just, I don't need, I don't want to fall. Um, and it's, you know, it really is doing a lot more for us than we've given credit for. And there are a lot of details we could look into, like if we wanted to look into the digestive system, you know, women work so hard on their prenatal nutrition and eating the right things. And there's not a lot of thought given to the right timing of the feeding. But like the process of autophagy is where the body is digesting itself and renewing itself at night and also building new cells and recycling cells. And all of that is dependent on the meal timings being coordinated. And so like, um, you know, if, if women are pregnant and they're missing breakfast, not only is it a detriment that they're not getting those nutritional building blocks, but it's also a detriment that they're missing this time when their digestive system is primed to do its best work. And then in the night, they can't sleep because they're hungry. So then they're putting food in their body. And even if it's really high quality food, their body is not primed, their microbiome and everything is not primed to be digesting at that time. So that's where it gets, like I was saying, that the principles are really easy when you look at morning sunlight, light throughout the day, have a dark night. Um, but it gets complicated when you look at like how difficult it is it really to eat breakfast on time and how difficult is it to like have a social life if it's getting dark at 4 p.m. and you need to be home under candlelight <laughs> and all of your you know, friends are inviting you over for dinner. And if you stay a little bit too late, now you have to drive. And so now your melatonin's getting set back several hours, right? So that's where it gets more complicated is in the social mm. um, aspect as far as putting it into play. And when, when we're looking at these different aspects of circadian rhythm and um, quantum health, I mean, obviously having that perfect lifestyle that supports those rhythms is the optimal but the reality is is that most of us aren't in that situation and I guess even for you who um works as a doula and doing um yeah being at births and attending births how would we offset the damages that would take place if we are exposed to light at the wrong time or, you know, for me at the moment I have to, all my work is done at night in front of a computer. So <laughs> I'm like, oh God, I listen to these these um, podcasts and getting these information and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like destroying my life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, surely there is <laughs> some kind of way that we can offset these. Mm. So I was wondering if you had yeah, anything to give our listeners who are, you know, who would Feeling like a bit to change it? Yeah, yeah. But also, I just wanted to add as well. I'm so glad that you brought up the emphasis on women um, putting so much attention on their prenatal or their um, prenatal protocols um, or preconception protocols. Um, and I think it's just important, and I've really looked into this myself too, is that. These things obviously can be important, but they're nowhere near as important of getting the timing right and understanding that it's more or less pointless if you can't get this first layer correct. Um, and, yeah, so not many people talk about that and it's kind of an un, unpopular thing to say, mm. um, especially with all my beautiful friends that I adore in the nutrition um, sphere. But, um, yeah, no, I think it's mm -hmm. important to add to note yeah yeah it is it's a it's a big deal because we need to like be able to turn it into like to turn the information into something that we can actually apply in the day-to-day -day lives and then you know with challenges like you know I would when it comes to working at, at night that was part of how I uh, came to this information was that I was um working an online job and it was, um, I was working in a different time zone. And so I was starting my days up on the screen in the morning with, you know, because it made a lot of sense to try to, to work while the kids were sleeping. And so I've, I've been there and, um, 
eventually what I decided was that I needed to not be doing that anymore. And so it's been, I mean, I'm, that was in 2014 and I'm still kind of working on getting that, uh, all of that undone because it is so, um, nice to be able to work uh, on the screen. It's a really powerful tool. So it's not something that we want to give up. And so different things, like if you're doing it at night, then that is a really big challenge. Um, I, I personally have moved to trying to do everything in the daytime so that I can um, be outside when I'm uh, working as much as possible, like in a indoor outdoor space. So that I'm still getting the ambient light, even if I'm also getting the screen light. Um, of course, putting a red filter over your screen can do some, but there's still like the flicker and there's still the EMF. So particularly with um, babies and young children, their um, all of their nerves and brain are not yet myelinated. And the myelination is like a fatty coating over the nerves to where um, they... That's what makes the electrical electrical conductivity like move where it needs to go, and so there is a lot of unknown about EMF exposure for um, babies and babies in the womb. And we know that it does um, like open the calcium channels, which is a, an excess of positive charge. In quantum biology, when we're talking about positive charges, we're um, that's one side, and then there's the negative charges, right? And so your body needs the right amount of positive and negative charge in the right places. So um, in order to offset this, like, man-made electricity and, and fields, there is, um, like, a, the only antidote is time and nature. So if you are working at night, you can offset it by being outside as much as possible in the day, like barefoot grounded so that you're pulling in um, electrons from the earth because that will discharge that excess positive force, right? If, you're, um, if your screen time is giving you that excess positive charge, then the, the negative charge from the earth can um, help stop that up. And so like in the studies, they still see increasing anti-inflammatory benefit at like three hours grounded so it's really like long periods of time and then spending all that time in sunshine. So if you're using um, screens at night, like having it dim will help. And of course, if you have your whole nighttime environment, right? Like when I'm getting up to um, go to a birth or to help my children or something, I will use uh, candlelight or very dim like sleep light bulbs. And especially with a large family, it's just so much easier to control the whole environment than trying to mess around with blue blockers and mm -hmm. hats and scarves. And, you know, like I have my turtleneck on for this because we're like, you know, it's it's sun sunset. The sun isn't down yet, but um, I'm like right here next to the window. So I'll like, you know, have the window cracked to get as much of the ambient light as possible. But it's really like bringing in the nature because of the the fields and balancing the charges and um we could have a whole conversation about collagen and, and the collagen network. Um, they sometimes call it the ground matrix and it touches every single part of the body. And so it's really a powerful way to get at places like the womb um, or like inside of our teeth. Like so many people have like hidden infections in their teeth. Um, and so when you're working with the collagen network, you can actually reach into these places that you can't like, you know, you can't get a tool into that part of the body without damaging it, except for through the collagen network, because it naturally touches everything. And so they call it the ground matrix because it can flow positive or negative charge um, anywhere that it needs to go. So it's really, really powerful for, um, you know, all this. I guess I'll just say the word redox. Yeah. Um, if you want to go down a huge rabbit hole, <laughs> and you can just search pregnancy redox mm. or pregnancy oxidative stress. And then you'll see um, how every major complication that we see in pregnancy comes from um, upset redox balance. Mm, something I do want to talk about, um, and now that we've covered pregnancy and birth, um, some of the big things that we face in, <laughs> 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 
some of the big things that we face <laughs> after our babies are born is, you know, obviously our babies don't sleep. And I often wonder, like, back in the day, way before, you know, all these non-native EMFs and artificial lights were really there, I mean, people used to say, oh, sleep like a baby. No one sleeps like a baby anymore. Babies don't sleep like a baby anymore. And um, is this attributed to the mother's circadian rhythm? And obviously on top of that, they're born into worlds that are flooded with all of these NNEMFs and artificial light? Uh, Okay, so this going to answer in my experience and so this might be uh well no i mean it is research based i did come across this in a paper um but they were speculating but uh newborn babies don't make their own melatonin uh it's not really measurable for the first few weeks of life okay so um and this fits in, like in old age, people also make don't make a lot of melatonin. So in that case, a baby is relying more on social cues and sunshine. So um, people are like super afraid of bringing their babies into the sunlight. And that sunlight, um, this is where what I was talking about with the uh, sunlight deficiency Um the babies need to go outside to see the bright light of day. And I'm not talking about going outside and letting babies get sunburned. That's We're gonna not go at there. all. We're going to talk about Smart solar colors. Solar <laughs> We're going to talk about solar colors. <laughs> yeah. We cannot get off this chart until we've spoken about solar colors and children because it's mm. something big where we live. Yes. Like where you live in Australia, it's the hottest place on the planet. <laughs> we need to know. Anyway, yeah. let's go back to that. Yeah. Let's go back to Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah. Yes. So um, babies need to go outside. And so it, when the babies just are staying inside all day um, or not having like any kind of deliberate time outside, then it makes sense that they are then not going to be stimulated enough. And so they're sleeping more, uh, spending more time napping in the day. And so the uh, there's, we talked about polysleep polyphasic sleep earlier and I told you that there's two main patterns but there is actually a third pattern and I kind of think of this as the shadow pattern and this is kind of where many people are living and this is what the NICU environment is like and so if you have an indoor environment that's pretty much static day in day out like I said this other one was where you're dialing the light up and down but this is just if we're looking at a static uh, environment, then sleep tends to polarize around four poles in the day. So this is like really common in invalids. And then it's also kind of what you will see in babies if they're not getting properly stimulated. And then this is how a lot of people that I think that deal with fatigue issues are just always feeling tired is because they're spending, they're not getting the cues from their light environment of like this the night and day. So they just are kind of in this perma dusk. And so it's sleep for a few hours, wake up for a few hours, but you don't fully wake up and then you want to sleep and then you, you know, and, and it will go into that kind of four peaks. And so uh, that is not an ideal uh, scenario. And that's where I think most people that just kind of have an indoor life that maybe only spend like 15 minutes a day um, outside will will go through. And then if a person is afraid of bringing their baby out, like when I wake up in the morning, first thing I'm picking my baby up and we're going out to greet the sun and we're standing there grounded, watching the sun come up. And that is our, you know, very first thing that we do every single day, like without fail, that's what we're going to do first thing. Um, and then throughout the day. So, one of the things I find really interesting about babies is they have all of this, you know, they're so fuzzy. They have all that little, like, you know, it, and so it actually has a name. It's called vellus hair. And it is a little UV antenna. And so it actually absorbs UV really fast and puts it into the skin. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this is physiological. Babies have extra vellus hair. And like, to me, that signals that they have an increased need to absorb UV really quickly. And so they can really get a lot out of even a short amount of exposure 
because their skin dehydrates easily. They, they don't thermoregulate as well. And so when they get that sunshine, they're like soaking it in really quick. And then same thing, like the soft spot in their head and, um, and they have a uh, very little melanin. Um, and so they haven't really gotten their protective layer yet. And that's partially, I think, physiological because they need to be able to get that UV light really quickly. Okay. I'm getting my baby delivered to me just okay. a sec. <laughs> Okay, here's Henry. He's Hi. my little sunshine boy. Oh my! I can tell. <laughs> he was born eyes. in the summer. Yeah. Hi, baby. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, yeah, this is my Henry boy. We go out every single morning to get that light. Yeah. And I think that that really helps with his sleep. He sleeps great. Um, and um, I think all my babies have really have really been good sleepers. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of times when I hear folks that are talking about their babies that aren't sleeping, they're uh, usually like the kind of family that has the TV on all the time. And then if there is, and they'll say like, oh, I do, I'll go outside. And like, oh yeah, what time? You know, like, oh, you know, usually between 10 and two. So, okay, but what about at six? What were you doing? What were you doing while the sun was rising? Um, and so if you, you know, like sometimes people, if they go out in the afternoon, then the body is responding to that. And that's the brightest thing it's seen all day. So then it's um, putting the circadian rhythm, thinking that it's morning when it's actually afternoon. And so then the sleep onset in the evening, especially if artificial lights continue to be used. And then um, so breastfed babies tend to sleep better than formula fed babies. And there are a lot of um, things there <laughs> with with that, um, but one of them is that melatonin is not present in um, or cortisol. Neither are present in formula, and the breastfed baby is going to be getting the hormonal signals from the mother's breast milk. So if the mom's circadian rhythm is wonky um, or like just kind of like flatline, not having super high peaks and valleys, then her milk is going to be that way too. And then you were talking about pumping. Um, you know, when is everyone's favorite time to pump? Like, is it 3 a.m., 2 a.m.? Like, that's the time that they're trying to sleep through, but that's the peak of melatonin in the milk. Mm. So it's really important to do that nighttime feed for babies. And then when you hear about moms and they're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're night weaning. And I can understand that. But at the same time, if you're night weaning, then your baby's getting that cortisol milk in the day, but it's not getting the melatonin milk at night anymore. So in some sense, it's like, well, if you do want to wean for half the day, maybe, maybe try day weaning and still keep the night weaning because the melatonin has such a powerful, um, mm. you know, relaxing and healing effect for babies. It makes, a I lot mean, of for sense. all people. It, it makes a great deal of sense. Cause obviously we're still one, our baby is still one with us quite, you know, for like what, seven years after yeah. they're born. Um, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, it just makes a lot of sense. Like it just seems like the most, you know, natural thing to do and it's not hard to um, see how that all occurs. But um, something that I do obviously want to talk about is um, building a solar callus for our children because we live in a place where people are oh, yeah. starting to learn that sunscreen is actually super toxic and, um, you know, well, for many years I've been told I'm really irresponsible and a complete lunatic and I'm sure you have too, Kashia, for not oh, no, wanting I, to put sunscreen on. I just on. don't share it with people. <laughs> what, um, do, what, what are you doing with your kids' uh, yeah. skin there? Like, um, But what is building a solar callus? And I, I, we also have a listener who's been super engaging the last couple of days and just wanting to basically touch on the fact that she had a melanoma re removed and she's kind of like, how do I, like, I obviously believe that sunscreen is not good. And, um, what about my kids and, um, what should I do now? And so, yeah, kind of just wanted to talk predominantly about our children and sun exposure and what a solar callus is and also for us too, and being pregnant and how important those things are. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So a solar callus is uh, several things. There's um, so when it comes to sunburn, 
we're not talking about letting babies get sunburned. We're not talking about getting sunburned ourselves. If we get sunburned, and it, it may not actually be as bad as we think, but um, what else could I say? It, in many cases, is from the heat and not necessarily the UV. Um, and that actually came out of some uh, photobiomodulation studies. So uh, photobiomodulation is something that really comes into play when we're having this conversation about smart solar exposure and building a solar callus. And that is what I was talking about as far as sleep, which is getting out early in the morning and exposing a lot of your sunshine to that light while the sun is still on the horizon, while it's still kind of sunrise and you're seeing the, the red colors in there. And there's no chance of getting any sunburn there. And that is the sunlight that most people are deficient in because we spend those morning hours inside the home. And of course, even if you're sitting next to a window, the window is blocking a lot of those frequencies. It's, they're not able to come through. Um, so if you are inside, then open the window and light is nonlinear. So it can travel through, even if you're not directly in the beam, like if you have to be like, you know, moving about, um, sitting next to the door. Um, so like where I am, we have pretty significant climate differences, uh, you know, from winter to summer. So that, that timing is, is an issue and getting the right um, clothing to be comfortable uh, with getting the solar exposure. But anyways, um, photobiomodulation is a healing process where the skin is absorbing the photons and um, the, the, it nourishes the collagen. And so it stimulates collagen growth, which is how skin repairs itself. And then there's another piece when we get to the UV light. So if we have gotten that morning light and have done that photobiomodulation, had our kids outside in that morning light, their circadian rhythm is set. They're yoked to the time of day. Their body is 100% sure what time of day it is. And it has also filled up with electrons, um, you know, ideally wearing grounding shoes or barefoot. And so then you have like this rich electrical field around that is totally natural and like vitality. Then when the UV rise happens, um, then that UV is coming into the skin and the skin is primed for it. And there are two forms of UV. There's UVA and UVB. And so UVA will be priming our circadian rhythm and stimulating the um, production of melanin. And melanin is the pigment that makes, you know, hair color and um, skin color. And melanin will increase across the life. So when we're thinking about a child and they're building their solar callus, they are building their layer of melanin from a really low um, level that they're born with. And then, um, like, uh, I have hazel eyes and people with hazel eyes, we collect melanin across our entire lifespan. So... Um, and, you know, like Henry, if you, you were commenting on his eyes, his very blue eyes, um, but over the course of his lifetime, he's going to continue um, absorbing sunlight and absorbing the melanin. So his eye color will actually change and, and move more towards green and hazel um, as he ages, which is what my eyes have done, uh, moving from blue through green. Um, and so with the solar callus and babies, we're like, building up that melanin slowly and then also their tolerance and ability to regulate their temperature and their hydration. Um, and those are the main dangers. Um, if you're looking about like, why don't we want babies to be out in the sun? It's that we don't want them to get dehydrated and we don't want them to get too hot. And those are really the main things. We're really looking at acute concerns and then all of the, um, studies that have been done about like skin cancer, a lot of them have been done with artificial lights. So kind of iffy. Um, uh, people have been using these sunscreens, which have not had really long-term uh, studies done on them. And now we're kind of finding out some pretty horrifying things. So, um, you know, in my work, I, I don't even touch on like the chemical natures of sunscreens. And, and I'm kind of thinking from the perspective that even if we had a perfectly clean sunscreen with no toxic effects. It was not bad for the environment. It was not bad for our skin. I still would not want to be blocking the UV because if the UV is too strong, then putting a shield up isn't going to make it
better to be out there. It doesn't block the heat. We wouldn't want it to. The entire point of going outside is to um, unite with nature. And so we want to be uh, smart about it and really respecting our biology and what it feels like. And um, so, of course, there are like nutritional factors of things that will make the skin more or less uh, sensitive. Um, And then there are issues with... um, when it comes to like fertility and microbiome, this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I think that it's really interesting um, in the research around folate, which of course you've heard of. If you're pregnant, you've heard of folate. Um, and um, people uh, are now believing that folate um, is directly related to the melanin and that the melanin is there to protect the folate, not to protect against skin cancer because skin cancer happens after the childbearing years usually, Um, whereas folate is broken down by UV light. And so if you're in, uh, if you have really fair skin and you're living in a climate where there is a much higher UV index than what your ancestors were under, then that can degrade the folate and interfere with fertility and circadian rhythms and things because um, there isn't that melanin shield. So in that case, being in the shade and, um, you know, being being cautious does make a lot of sense. Um, mm. um, could you just really yeah. quickly define quantum hydration? Just because... I find this really oh, hard yeah. to explain because when people start looking at me okay. like I've totally lost the plot and I just want someone someone else to do it. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, I'll, we'll see if I can do any better because uh, <laughs> I'm sure I, you can. I, I'll get pretty wonky looks yeah. <laughs> when, when trying to describe this too. Um, okay, so uh, quantum hydration. So what we're looking at in this case is we're looking at the mitochondria. Um, and, you know, this kind of relates with melanin too, actually, because melanin, um, can split and reform the water molecule. So if you've ever heard of the idea of like a hydrogen battery, that is what melanin is doing. Melanin is the human equivalent of chlorophyll. And so it is a process where every time the water molecule is split and reformed, it is, um, we're able to draw electrons out of that transaction. So this is huge for pregnancy because, again, with the nutrition, we're always thinking about how do we get the nutrition, and we're looking to food for too much. We're relying too heavily on food. We're looking for food for the bulk materials, and we're also looking to food for the energy. And so we can take the strain off of the digestive system. I mean, what pregnant woman does not deal with heartburn, uh, constipation, diarrhea, hemorrhoids, like there's all kinds of digestive system issues, not to mention nausea. Mm. Um, And so if we are able to take some of the strain off of the digestive system by um, absorbing electrons from the environment, and then part of that is having a really healthy tan, like the sun-kissed glow is a measure of fertility. And part of that is because of the ability of melanin to split and reform the water molecule and harvest energy out of that. Okay. So if you're pregnant, then you want to be going out and tanning your belly carefully, right? You're not going out to get sunburn and get dehydrated and get all woozy and, you know, all the things that are bad that can happen from the sun. Um, you're just going out to the point that it feels good. Um, and then, but most people, when they're talking about quantum hydration, we're talking about the mitochondria. And a part of the mitochondria that is called the electron transport chain. And this is what is making our cellular energy. So our mitochondria, they call it the powerhouse of the cell because that's making um, ATP, which we think of as running the different pumps to give the charge it, to make the charges correct. See what I'm saying? It takes a long time to describe. Yeah. <laughs> Those without a biochem okay. background are struggling right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what, and it's hard. Like, no, like, I, don't I, have a, I don't think there is an easy way. No, I don't know if there is an easy yes. way, but if you ever post it online, I will be sure to share that <laughs> because, yeah, it's yeah. kind of okay. a hard one to get your head around. But I often wonder, like, okay. the term, like, because everyone thinks, you know, like, let's pack a water bottle, we're going to the beach, like, hydration, hydration, mm-hmm. hydration, we're going to get dehydrated in the sun. But I'm like... Oh, yeah. I don't think it works like that. 
No, it doesn't. Okay. So um, I kind of first came into this idea actually from the macrobiotic community. Are you familiar with the idea of macrobiotic eating? Kind of. Yeah. I haven't. Kind of. Yeah. I haven't followed anyway, it. Anyway, it's, it's one of the, okay. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I was introduced to it in childhood and it's basically this idea that you're supposed to live off of like brown rice and a small amount of vegetables and um, protein. Fat it and kind of came out of an ancient is. philosophy. Yeah. yeah. And it was, um, I think that the idea was to facilitate a like spiritual kind of existence. And so it kind of makes sense in that regard that, um, you know, if you're living a spiritual lifestyle in the sense of like a monastery, it's really different. Um, energy demands. And, um, but yeah, I don't find that it really well works well, but anyways, they have the idea that you're not supposed to drink a lot of water. And that was really interesting, but I went through a phase of not drinking water and I was thinking, and then it's like, I'm not getting dehydrated. What, you know, this is so weird. You know, when I went through, you know, I was one of those people who did a lot of the diet fads and stuff. So I'm like, okay, well here I am and I'm not drinking water and not getting dehydrated. This kind of flies in the face of eight glasses of water a day. Mm. Um, so to zoom back into the way that our cells are powered inside um, and this electron transport chain, it is taking energy from the air that we breathe and the food that we eat and the electrons that we get if we're grounding. And this is a place where a lot of us are deprived of electrons because of wearing rubber shoes all the time. Um, and so the electron transport chain is making ATP and water. And in the current model, the idea is that the water that's made in that process is a byproduct. Um, but in the quantum biology model, we're looking at that water and we're saying, okay, there's water being made in the cells and the cell has a net negative charge. And so water is a polar molecule and which means it has a positive side and a negative side. And that's what makes it like if you have a drop of water on a glass, uh, glass has a charge. And so it makes that bubble, right? And so basically the quantum hydration idea is that because our cells have a negative charge, the water will form along every surface of the cell that has that negative charge and it will all be facing the same direction. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that means that the water, instead of being all mixed up the way that it is in bulk water that we drink, it is in a perfect alignment. And so that's when you hear people talk about like a liquid crystal that's what they're talking about is that the molecules of the water are all aligned. And so it has that kind of viscous, like tense, like the morning dew mm -hmm. um, is that kind of, is that they call it easy water. There's mm -hmm. a lot of different ways and it has really special properties because the charges are all aligned and organized. I think quantum hydration and the fourth phase of water and easy water is like a two hour conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we will leave that for another day, but thank yeah. you so much. I feel like okay. we've gotten so much out of this conversation and it's definitely given us a lot of insight and I know our listeners will have gotten so much out of it as well. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. It was wonderful to be here and congratulations to you. Thank you, you both being pregnant together. That is so sweet. The, the social aspect of having community for babies is just the best. Um, that's, that's something I would recommend to everybody. I've been told it's called quantum yeah. entanglement because we've yeah. been hanging out too much and we got pregnant <laughs> <is>. together. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, it's so important. I have uh, friends that we're going through that with around here and it is just so lovely to go through the processes and be able to watch your babies grow up together and mm. yeah it's really wonderful like building community and especially to be aligned in lifestyle um yeah. if I could share one last little anecdote we um it, up here in my community have uh kind of taken over Halloween and so rather than it being a candy-filled trick-or-treating holiday we are kind of going old school and gathering for a big bonfire and having the local, you know, the harvested fruits and cooked desserts. So the kids are still happy with that, but they are running around out, um, yeah, with actual fire. And the moms, you know, we're together having the social connection and it is so much more wholesome. And I think that it's example of how this lifestyle is, can be nourishing on so many levels. Like we, we talked a lot about biology and, 
and like physical things, you know, like if we're talking about like ATP and proton mm. pumps and <laughs> uh, voltage gated calcium channels. Yeah. But it's like back. when it comes down to it, it's like, do you want to go out and trick or treat and get, yeah, I don't know. Do you guys trick or treat down in um, It's getting much bigger Australia? here in Australia. Yeah. And it's bizarre because it's yeah. so not the season for it. Like it's spring and it's hot and, and you know, we're bringing out all this scary stuff and I'm like, but we're in spring like it should be like the celebration of life yeah (laughs) it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but people are getting really into it here and um it's widely acceptable but I actually love the idea of gathering with all our crazy kids and having a bonfire and eating beautiful wholesome desserts next year next year next year that's it (laughs) yeah and then you don't have like the candy all around the house that you're then dealing with like Mm, weed it out we did that that. this year and and it was horrible dude we've got we've got like a plan I'll set you oh I tried this year but they've just gotten so much old they're like yeah it's, we usually like okay yeah. give it all to me we'll trade it and we'll go and get like really good ice cream or something mm. but that didn't really work this mm-hmm. time anyway yeah no so it's challenging but that's what i was saying like yeah. the quantum lifestyle if you have community where everyone's doing it the same mm-hmm. or like you know not the same but when you're doing it together like it's easier for my kids to have peers who are also on board with this and saying like okay we're like the house is all gonna have like these red lights and stuff and that's just normal like their friends aren't gonna come over and be like why what that's weird um because you know we're all doing it together and like oh we're you know out doing these things um and like I I listened in in the podcast before this one which was great um about like the kid in school with the blue blocking glasses right and so that's where like to move this information the more people know and like make it more mainstream then like what if we could actually change the lights in the classroom rather than trying to like individualize kids whose parents are a little loopy (laughs) yeah so true well, thank you so much. We'll let you get back to your little bubba. And um, he's so cute, by the way. Yeah, those blue eyes are a testament <laughs> to yeah. him being out know, in the sun all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank yeah. you, Nico. All right, that was fun. Yeah, nice to meet you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Road to Wisdom podcast. To join the journey, you can follow us on Instagram at theroadtowisdom.podcast www.theroadtowisdompodcast.com Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We look forward to seeing you next week with more juicy content.